0: Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. On behalf of Pastors David and Nicole Binion, thank you for joining us today at the Dwell Church Podcast. For more information about Dwell Church, visit us at dwell.church. Now, let's listen to today's message. Come on, let's just take a few moments and show him our love this morning. Thank you, Zahir. I feel Jesus in the room, yeah. <laughs> he's wonderful. Um, so I, I spoke a message about a month ago when we were back at the courtyard courtyard called The House of God and it was really just a prep, prep sermon for where we're at today, but I really felt led this morning to do a part two of that message, but instead of titling it The House of God, I, I felt led to call it The House of Bethany. <laughs> The house of Bethany. I felt like that was obviously more applicable to us as a people, at 402 West Bethany Drive. And um, as prophetic people, we can tend to try to find meaning in every little thing. Oh, it's three thirty-three, three thirty-three, or or whatever it is. I address his names. It can get a little wonky sometimes, but sometimes it is the Lord. And I I truly feel that name, Bethany, for us is more than just a mere name for our address, but it is a a call to an identity that will grip us as a people called dwell. And so that's what I I really want to touch on today. Before I get into the name of Bethany, that that meaning, I just want to, just want to, say this, there's been a question that has really gripped my heart the last three years of my life. It's been a question that has really uh, driven my pursuit of Jesus, and that question is this, what would the church as a whole look like if we primarily built houses not to attract people but to attract God? God. I believe, I say this with great fear and trembling, but I believe much of the North American church landscape is built on influencing man rather than touching God. And I believe this is a house that will be a prototype for his last day's church, a a prototype of what does it look like for a people to gather primarily to touch the Lord because when we touch the Lord, he touches people. (laughs) Scripture says when he is exalted, he will draw all men unto him. All we have to do is the exalting, he'll do the drawing. (laughs) Many people put so much time, effort, energy into drawing when if you would just do exalting, we will never have a people problem. (laughs) And you know that, it's it's so, it's so much more simple that way, so much more easier that way. Many people would think it's so unproductive to gather here at 6 a.m. just laying down and looking at the Lord saying, I love you, I love you, I love you, but that is the most productive place we can be at the feet of Jesus. I shared this uh, last month, I believe. Pastor Larissa Miller, she's the pastor of Upper Room in Dallas, close to downtown, and She had this dream, and when she shared this, it it so marked me. And in this dream, um, she was trying on wedding dresses and uh, preparing for a wedding. And all the dresses that they brought out for her that she would try on were just so revealing. They had little slits in the leg and just showing too much. And she just was feeling uh, just very uncomfortable. And she peeked her head out of the room and said, psst, do you have anything else to wear? I, I... I'm a bride, brides aren't meant to be sexy, they're meant to be pure, they're meant to be attractive to one husband, not a bunch of husbands, we are called to one husband. And I wanna suggest that we as a bride are called to marry one husband who is Jesus. God will not present Jesus a bride that is filled with earthly mixture. He is preparing a bride that is attractive to one. And I feel like for, for all too long, the, the church as a whole in the name of attracting the world has dressed like the world. <laughs> and he's changing that script today. <laughs> you can feel it all over the world. You can feel he's changing that language. He's changing, he's changing that script. And I, I believe Jesus is truly power washing her, his bride of all the stuff that she's placated on her to be beautiful, to be pure, to be be holy. You know, when I first started really spearheading Dwell Youth, I really felt the Lord press me to, that instead of the time, energy, and effort that I would spend on planning a service, to use that time, energy, and effort on preparing my heart for fire. (laughs) That there would be more fruit, the energy I would spend preparing for a service, there would be more productivity in preparing my heart for fire, and a few weeks ago, we we had a Dwell Youth service, and it was just beautiful. All I can say is Jesus just came into the room and just completely touched our our teenagers, and that night... uh, we had M&Ms and Skittles, and anytime you have M&Ms and Skittles in a youth room, you're going to be finding M&Ms and Skittles all over the floor after youth, and uh, it was such a beautiful moment. There was so much tears at the altar, but anyway, after, after service, I was sweeping the floor, and I only saw just a few M&Ms and Skittles, but when I got to the altar, I saw like 10 different used t- tissue filled with tears and I looked to the Lord and I said, Lord, I'm so thankful there are more tissue on this floor than there are Skittles and m ms I'm so thankful that it is possible for a generation to be built on Jesus rather than the stuff. <laughs> the stuff is great. We do the stuff, the fun stuff. We have, we have fun, but I am not here for their entertainment. I'm here for their transformation to see Jesus. It's to see him. and what i'm what i feel we are going for as a people is a ministry without mixture if you think about pure water pure water is just water that has the least amount of additions to it pure water has the least amount of additions and in james 3 11, it says, can both fresh water and salt water come from the same spring? And it, in other words, we cannot afford to be a bride of worldly mixture. And a church without mixture does not mean a church who has ridded herself of the people of the world. But it's a church who has ridded herself of the ways of the world. This is an upside down kingdom. We cannot Act the way the world acts. There's a separation that must take place between the bride and the world, and he is purifying his bride, removing all of that mixture. Yes, yes. You know, if you were if you were in a desert and you had ten cisterns of water or ten tanks of water, and nine of those tanks of water had impurities in it, one of those tanks had pure water in it, you would not necessarily have to come up with strategy of how to get people in that line of pure water. And much of the ministry world spends time, energy, busyness, and bandwidth of trying to get people to come into that line, when if you would just take that time, energy, and bandwidth to keep the water pure, you will never have a people issue using that energy to keep this thing pure. It's It's about purity, the pure bride. And uh, House of Bethany, my goal this morning is really to continue putting language and articulating that, that word, Bethany. So Bethany, the original meaning of this name means house of affliction or house of poverty. And when you hear that, I know immediately it's like, oh, that's, that's, a, that's a bad thing, that's negative. Um, but I wanna say, the Lord is not in any way speaking of financial poverty. He's speaking on this poverty of the soul. This soul that comes to the Lord, approaches him on these terms that say, if you don't come today, we don't have anything to gather for. <laughs> Being poor in spirit. And the first time in scripture that it speaks of being poor in spirit is when Jesus gave his first sermon ever we all know it as the sermon on the mount or the beatitudes i always look at the the beatitudes the sermon on the mount as really the constitution of our faith it's really the magna carta of the christian faith the foundations of a Christian life, and I believe it. The Beatitudes, the Sermon on the Mount, is so important for us in this season because I believe how the church started is how the church will end. How the Lord began the church is how it will end, and I believe this sermon will grip our hearts in the days to come. And uh, as we get closer and closer to Jesus's return, I'm not sure things in the world will get any easier. Uh, you know, pandemics and And all this stuff, I'm not sure things will get easier, but I know this, great pressure always births great prayer in a people, and great prayer always births greater presence in a people of God. Great pressure is always under greater prayer, which is unto great presence. And I don't know what lies ahead here, but all I know is that cultural Christianity cannot sustain us. Casual Christianity cannot sustain us. We must approach Jesus with these terms of being poor in spirit. And I heard this story a couple years ago of this airline pilot who was was test flying a plane that he was looking at buying. And he took this plane up to cruising altitude and as he was up in the air, he looked over and realized there was a rat chewing on one of the fuel lines in the airplane. I don't know about you, but I don't like rats when I'm down on earth, much less hundreds of feet up in the air in a metal tube. So he he sees this rat chewing on a fuel line and he realizes I can do two things. I can either descend, land the plane, take care of the rat, or I could ascend the plane to a higher altitude, a higher elevation that cuts off oxygen for the rat and kills it. The pilot will still have oxygen, but the rat won't. So he chooses to do the latter. He ascends the plane to a higher altitude, cuts off the oxygen for the rat and comes down and lands safely. And I believe many times when crisis and pressure is chewing on the nation, there is always an opportunity opportunity for the church to descend itself, to move the goalpost, to dial down the standard and try to deal with the chaos and human knowledge and human intellect instead of allowing that pressure to ascend the hill of the Lord, to ascend to a higher place in prayer and worship. See, times of urgency in the nation, it really changes our priorities. It changes what really matters. If someone was holding your face down underwater for more than 10 seconds, the last thing on your mind will be what you're watching on Netflix that night. It'll be, give me air and give it to me now. And I believe the cry, the call for these coming days will be, give me Jesus, give me him now. Take the stuff, just give me him, I want him. That will be the defining marker in houses of worship. Was he there? When he came, did we love him rightly? That's the measuring stick for success. So house of Bethany means poor in spirit. Have you ever come to a point where you read scripture? You read something and you're like, I'm reading these words, but I know what that word feels like. Like I've experienced the feeling of that word right there that I'm reading. And for me, I have Experience the blessing of what that feeling is of being poor in spirit the last three years i've had seasons where i've where i've had it i've had seasons when i've lost it i've had seasons where i'm getting it back but being poor in spirit is one of the most difficult things to really communicate and articulate but I just want to I just want to read in Matthew chapter five where Jesus talks about this because I believe. Being poor in spirit is like the key to the ignition of the car called revival. That's how important it is. It is like the key that you put into the ignition of the car that moves to revival. And so I want to read Matthew chapter 5 if you have your Bibles. This is the constitution of our faith, the sermon on the mount. It says when he saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And after he sat down, his disciples came to him. Then he began to teach them saying, blessed are the poor in spirit because the kingdom of heaven is theirs. In the passion translation, it says, what wealth is offered to you when you feel spiritual poverty. And like I said, this is one of the most difficult things to articulate, so I'm gonna try my best to do it by sharing just my own story. You know, I grew up most of my life as a very intense planner. Um, I, when I was 15, is when I started working. I started saving up money for an engagement ring when I was 15 to a girl I didn't even haven't even met yet. I w- I made a vow with God when I was 15 that I want to date one woman, marry one woman. So I ended up saving money for an engagement ring. So I I began saving up money, working. And I just kind of had my life kind of planned out. I want to go to ministry school. I want to do all these things. I want to get married. And so um, fast forward, Emily and I ended up meeting, thankfully, and we got married. And right after we got married, it seemed like really life was good. You know, we were both in full-time ministry with each other. She was leading worship every week. I was really speaking every week and things were just seemed like they were moving a lot for us. But Underneath all of that, there was just one big problem. It's that our hearts weren't burning for Jesus. Our hearts were cold. Our hearts weren't in love. We were doing the stuff, but our hearts weren't in love. And, and I believe we must come to a place where we separate our need to be used for Jesus with our love for Jesus. There's so much amazing destiny calling teaching out there. I love it. But I realized I want to be more in love with him than I am with my calling and my destiny. Because one moment with his face, I don't even have to care about seeking my destiny. My destiny will just come. I could care less about that. Just give me him. If my heart's dead inside, my destiny doesn't even matter. I don't want to walk in my calling if he's not there burning in my heart. And so we came to this place in our lives where we were like, I don't know where we're going, I just know where we can't stay. How many of you have ever been in the moment like that, a season, I believe many of you are sitting in this room because you answered that question of, I don't know where I'm going, I just know where I can't stay anymore. And so we felt the whisper of heaven call us to pack up everything and move to Redding, California, sit under the school there, and um, just a beautiful time. And really, halfway halfway through that time, I realized that uh, there was no transformation in my heart. I was in a revival culture, the epicenter of revival, but still, my heart was was cold towards Jesus. And I remember going before the Lord, saying, "Jesus, you can't leave me the same. I can't back home. Can't go back home the same. I, I want to be like Jacob. I want to walk back home with a limp in my walk. I I, I need you to touch me, Lord." And and more than halfway through the year, we had one of the most incredible encounters with the Lord we've ever had. It lasted for like a two or three week period. But I just remember this specific encounter, just the electricity of heaven just flowing through my body where I was laying on the floor for like two hours by the electricity of heaven. I just felt the Lord prying my hands of everything my soul was attached to that wasn't him. You know, when we, were, when we went to Bethel, Uh, since I saved money, we had a pretty large sum of money, what I would think for two 21-year-old newlyweds. And when we got to Reading, I was like, we're gonna work, we're gonna keep this cushion. But when we got there, we applied for hundreds and hundreds of jobs and nothing, got nothing. It was almost like the Lord said, I need you to sit down. (laughs) I need you to do nothing for nine months. Am I enough for you? And little by little, we came to this moment all that money we saved up was gone. We had no platform, we had no jobs, we had nothing. But I remember in that season, coming before the Lord every, every day, and I would get on my knees and I would say, Jesus, all I need is you. And whoosh, I would feel the fire come. And I say, You're, this is worth more than every money, every dollar in my bank account. You are worth more than any dream come true. Jesus, I pray you tattoo that in our hearts today. Just Jesus, just Jesus. You know, the question for me wasn't how many possessions did I have? It was how many possessions had me? (laughs) You know, how much favor is too much favor for a person? I believe whatever amount replaces trust. How much money is too much money for a person? I believe whatever amount replaces trust. That is the standard for heaven. He's a relational father. He wants relationship more than he wants to bless us. He wants to bless us, but more than that, he wants to know us. He wants us to know him. Being poor in spirit. Being poor in spirit. And uh, in that season is when the Lord really imprinted in my heart that phrase I've said a couple times, Jesus is my dream, everything else is my assignment because many times we make our assignments and our callings our dreams and we leave him on the side but I don't want a dream without him in it he is worth more than any dream come true and to be a house that hosts him we must be lovers of the presence not not just visitors of the presence but addicted to the presence where we can't breathe without him we, we can't move without him this is psalms 27 4 Notice King David is writing this psalm. He's saying, one thing I ask of the Lord, this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. Keep in mind, we, we kind of tend to skim over this. This is a king writing this, this scripture right here. This is not, this is not a, a poor person. This is not a, a pauper. This is a king who has access to any possessions he wants on the, in the world. However, it's possible to come to the place where we can have everything, but our hearts only possess one thing. We can have buildings, we can have all these things, but really the only possession our heart has is the person of Jesus. He's the possession. And a word that is really a synonym to being poor in spirit is a word I call hunger. Hunger. And hunger, I believe, is really currency in the kingdom of God. It's currency for encounter. I know a couple weeks ago when I was sick, I didn't wanna eat anything. I was not hungry for anything. Every time I thought of food, it just made me nauseous. And I remember on a, I did an MD live call and the doctor told me, you'll know you're getting healthy the moment you start getting hungry. And I believe hunger is a sign of spiritual health. <laughs> it's, a, it's a sign, a measuring stick for spiritual health in a believer's lives, and it really attracts the move of God. And Bill Johnson, he's really known as one of the fathers in the revival movement, and he was asked on a panel once, he was asked, what is your favorite scripture on revival? And he said said this, he said, my favorite scripture on revival really has nothing to do with revival, but it's about the heart posture it carries. And he said, it's Proverbs 27.7. I want to read it. A satisfied soul loathes the honeycomb. Wow. But to a hungry soul, every bitter thing is sweet. Let's just take a moment and let that sit in. Wow. I wanna I wanna just read that again. A satisfied soul loathes the honeycomb, but to a hungry soul, every bitter thing is sweet. Wow. Yeah. The best way I can illustrate that is uh, I was listening to a YouTube video of someone reading a John G. Lake sermon. How many of you know John G. Lake, incredible revivalist? And John G. Lake in this sermon was talking about hunger, talking about the the currency of hunger in the kingdom. And he shared a story one day, he was uh, walking to his sister's house and it was snowing, there was snow uh, almost up to his knees and his sister lived several miles away. So he was on this long, long walk on this long journey and he was starving. He was famished. He felt dehydrated. So he finally made it to his sister's house and she wasn't home, but he saw this freshly baked cake sitting on the windowsill. And he just went after it. He said, I just went after it. I just started devouring it. And he said, as I was eating it, it tasted really funky. It tasted really weird, like not what a normal cake would, would taste like. And so he just cleared the whole cake out, just ate it. And, and his sister ended up coming home. And he said, hey, what was that cake that you had baked? It was, it was really weird tasting. And she said, oh, John, you didn't eat that, did you? That was a cow cake. That was a cake for the cows that we, we feed outside. How many of you know when you're hungry, you don't really care what food tastes like? You don't ask questions as long as there's food there you eat. In other words, to those who are hungry, even the crumbs from the bread of God's presence tastes like an entire feast. Yes. Yes. To those that are hungry, and I realize those who are truly hungry never allow criticism to come out of their mouths of the food that's on the table the entitled, the spiritually entitled will criticize the house of God. But those who are desperate come in these doors saying, just give me a crumb of Jesus. I just want Jesus, just give me him. I don't care what package it looks like. I don't care what lights we have. Just give me him, I want him. That is what desperation can do. And I believe he is imprinting this house with hunger, with desperation. To the hungry, even the bitter things taste sweet. I realized in my my personal time with Jesus, the terms by which I approach the Lord dictate how I experience the Lord. The terms by which, which I come, if I approach scripture casually, I will get casual fruit. But Jesus said, man shall not live on bread alone. Every word that comes from the mouth of God, we are alive because he speaks. We are alive because he speaks. And I believe King David was was so successful building this tabernacle, building this house because he approached God with these terms. He wrote in Psalms, Lord, if you are silent to me, it's as though I'm dead in the pit. That is a heart of desperation. That is a heart approaching Jesus with these terms that if you don't speak to me, I have nothing inside. I have nothing to be poor in spirit. So just an example, if I approach the Lord with a casual, with, with a casual heart. If I approach him, for example, with the scripture, Psalms 84, how lovely is your dwelling place, Lord of hosts. My soul yearns, even faints for, for the courts of the Lord. If I approach that casually, I won't get much out of it. I'll get casual fruit. However, if I approach that scripture with these terms that if you don't speak to me, my heart is dead, then I'll read it so differently. I'll read it, how lovely is your dwelling place, Lord of hosts. My soul yearns, even faints for the courts of the Lord. Better is one day in your house than a thousands elsewhere. What would be bitter to the spiritually entitled would be a feast <laughs> to the hungry. This is what being poor in spirit is. You know, there's a movie that I grew up watching, a Disney movie called Holes. Anybody ever seen that movie? It came out a while back, but in Holes, um, the two boys are are stuck in a desert, and they're 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 thirsty, they're hungry, and just watching them in the desert makes you thirsty and hungry. You're just like, man, I need a glass of water right now. And they they get to this this mountain. It's called God's Thumb in the movie, and in the mountain they start feasting. They find these onions, and they start eating these onions and drinking water, and if you know anything about me, onions are my least favorite food. I, I cannot stand onions in my food. Emily knows I will not eat it if it has onions in it. So watching these boys, they're so hungry, they come up to, to this oasis. They start eating these onions. Me, not liking onions, I start craving onions, watching them. It makes it look so good, and I, I, I want to suggest that when you're hungry, provokes you to constantly feast on Jesus. Even those who despise Jesus will want what you're feasting on. Hunger is contagious. Hunger is contagious. Even the world who despises the Lord will want what you're eating. They'll want it. So I wanna move on by giving you three pillars that shape a house of Bethany, three pillars. Just to recap from, from last month, I, I shared a, another Bill Johnson story. <laughs> Bill Johnson shared with us when we were in school that uh, in the beginning stages of Bethel, um, Bethel wasn't seeing the, the move of God that, that you would see that they're experiencing now. There were no miracles happening. There was really not much going on, but Bill felt that there was a seed of revival in his church. And so he flew to Argentina, and in Argentina, there was this massive outbreak of God's presence happening. It was just a huge move of God. And he just wanted to expose his heart to, the, to revival. And so he, he went to Argentina and he saw and witnessed what was happening. And the Lord showed him this. The Lord showed him this move in Argentina it was a huge, big oak tree. That is at it. its full peak. And what he had in Reading was a small little acorn. Just because it was an acorn, it doesn't make it any different than an oak tree, but there is the potential for an oak tree inside that acorn. And I would suggest we have an acorn right here in our midst that dwell. And we must steward it rightly because the oak tree is coming to this house. The oak tree is coming. Yes, yes, yes. So the first thing I wanna wanna give is number one, intimacy over influence is a pillar that shapes the house of Bethany. Yeah. You know, influence, it's, it's become a real, a real buzzword in today's culture. It's become just really popular with the social media age and it's really uh, integrated itself into the church world. And, and I really feel like influence has become an idol in our generation in many ways. And influence, I believe, is counterfeit authority. Yeah. It promises you something that it doesn't deliver on. And I tell the youth this, I say, influence that kills your personal fire is not influence. It is emptiness. If it kills your fire with Jesus, throw it away. It is emptiness. And I tell them, I don't wanna be influenced by anyone who is not being influenced by Jesus. (laughs) I I like influence, but I don't wanna be influenced by a person, by anyone or a thing who is not first being influenced by the man, Jesus. And I, I believe for us to be a house of influence on earth, we must first learn how to be a people who influence heaven, who influence the heart of Jesus through our love, through our prayer, through our adoration. You know, showing up on Monday mornings at 6 a.m., we're not just doing this for fun because it's trendy, because it looks cool to check off a box. We are we are contending for heaven to come. <laughs> These are the terms we're approaching him with. And why is it at 6 a.m.? Because it's costly. It should cost us something. We must give him the something that cost us something. King David said, I will never present to the Lord anything that has cost me nothing. Costliness, costliness. Fire always falls on sacrifice the moment sacrifice leaves the altar the fire goes with it may we always live on the altar of sacrifice and you know as with with influence and and all this as i as i've grown up in the church these last couple decades or so i've i've heard many awesome podcasts and books and christian teachings on influence and Leadership and all of it is great. There's a place for that. And the biggest thing that really grieves my heart in all of this is that most of these strategies and principles do not require seeking and beholding the face of Jesus. It's really centered on your own finesse, your own talent, your own gifting. It's about more beholding the face of man rather than the face of God. And I want to just slay that giant. This morning, it's, con- it's being convinced of your own abilities. And you know, there's a difference between man's leadership and the leadership of Jesus. There's a difference between those who are leading for Jesus and those who Jesus is actually leading. It's a huge gap between the two. And the world's definition of influence all it requires is you beholding the face of, of yourself. And the tabernacle of David, the house house of David was so revolutionary. And in this tabernacle, it's really interesting, they had these water basins that the priests constructed. And these water basins were, were made from bronze. And they weren't just made from any bronze, they were made from the bronze that came from the mirrors of the Israelites. So, The Israelite women had these mirrors that they used to look at themselves. And when the temple was being built, they surrendered, gave up their mirrors. The priests took the bronze, they forged it, purified it, molded it, and formed this wash basin that the priests would go to before they would enter the Holy of Holies. In other words, laying down your vanity gives you access to behold God's beauty. Another way of saying this is God wants us to rid ourselves of staring at ourselves all day to, in order to enter his presence. He wants to rid a generation, a people from looking at you to looking at him. <laughs> he wants us to be more convinced of his beauty than we are of our own gifts, talents, and finesse. So King David, his Leadership. I believe King David, why he was so successful is because he lived a life driven by the leadership of God instead of the leadership of man. See, Saul tolerated what God despised. And David hated what God despised and loved what God loved. And to be a house, we must have a house that he dwells in. We must have a value system change where we adore the things he adores and we hate the things he hates. He's a really good church builder. (laughs) How do we build the house of God? Ask him what he likes. What is revelation for? What does his house in heaven look like? Well, there's a throne. That means there's one in the center. There's not a man in the center. There's not a woman. There's not a program. It's him in the center. What's around, this, what's around them? Angels, elders casting down their thrones. If that's what his house looks like there, I wanna make it look like that here. It's throne-centered house. This is a throne-centered house where he fills at home in. And uh, I wanna read Psalms 132. I, I touched on this uh, last month, but Psalms 132, I believe, is really the secret sauce to why David did what he did in his life. This is the most important psalm in the Psalter that we can look at of why David was so successful, what drove him to building a house to host God's presence. And David most likely made this vow with God when he was just a boy in the shepherd's field. He made this vowed to God when he had zero influence, he had zero notoriety, he, he had really nothing to his name but a bunch of sheep. All he had was the person of Jesus and he realized that was enough for him. Then, and he knew when I take the throne, that'll be enough for me there. So he made this vow and and Solomon, his son, in Psalms 132 is actually the one reciting this vow to God. He's reciting this vow that the previous generation made. And I think it's so important that houses of worship are not just built on a single generation. They're meant for generations we may never know or we may never see. So Psalms 132, this is David's voice, but Solomon's writing, Lord, please don't forget all the hardships David had to pass through and how he promised you Jacob's mighty God saying, I will not cross the threshold of my own home. This is his vow to sleep in my own bed. I will not sleep or slumber or even take time to close my eyes and rest until I find a place for you to dwell. O oh, mighty God of Jacob. I devote myself to finding a resting place for you. Yeah. Obviously, David slept after he made this vow. <laughs> yeah. Obviously, he went, he went to his home. He enjoyed life, but what I believe he was saying is that this vow would be all-consuming. Yeah. This vow would be the thing that drove him, that consumed him. From the moment he woke up, it'd be, I wanna find a place for the Lord to dwell. Noontime, I wanna find a place for the Lord to dwell. Nighttime, I'm hitting my pillow. I want to find a place for the Lord to rest. I want him at any cost. This was a vow that was completely all-consuming. This is his vow, and and if he made this vow, we can make this vow, too. If, 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 If this happened under a lesser covenant, how much more of Jesus can come into this room with under the new covenant of his blood I say, Lord do it here at Bethany <laughs> do it here so verse 11 well I'm going to start in verse seven actually let's go into God's dwelling place and bow down and worship before him Arise, O Lord, and enter your resting place both you and and the ark of your glorious strength. May your priests wear the robes of righteousness and let all your godly lovers sing for joy. Don't forsake your anointed king now, but honor your servant David, for you gave your word and promised David in an unbreakable oath. So get this, David makes a vow with God, so in turn, God makes a vow with David when you commit to taking care of his house, he will commit and vow to taking care of your house. And what was God's vow to David in return? It would be that the person of Jesus, the coming Messiah would sit on his throne forever. <laughs> is it amazing to me what's, what's possible? That one man, a human lived on this earth and impacted the heart of God so much that God said, I love what this man did to me. I am going to set my son, the Savior, on his throne. (laughs) How can we, Dwell Church, touch the heart of God now? What can we do to his heart? How can we move his heart just like that song? Is it a fragrance? I'll give it to you. What what is it? What will move you? We just want to move you. That is our cry. This is a defining mark of this house. We want to move you. Years after David made this vow, he finally took the throne. And and, uh, I believe it was his first Chronicles, he gathered, it would be like the president gathering all the news stations together and giving an inaugural address. So David gave his inaugural address to Israel and he pretty much told them this, if I am going to be leading you, you are now going to be led by the one who has been leading me all these years. You are not going to be led by the leadership of a man. You are going to be led by the leadership of God. Because I am your leader now, you are now going to be led by the one who has been leading me from the shepherd's field. I believe there are so many in this house who God is raising up as God's leaders who will lead businesses, who will lead in your in places of work, your spheres of influence, not as a leadership of man, but as the leadership of Jesus. Because when... God is in the house, it'll attract people to the house. <laughs> so second thing I want to say is uh, number two, uh, purity over popularity. I, ter- I touched on uh, purity at the beginning. You know, I was at an upper room with Pastor David a couple months ago hearing Lyle Phillips preach. We love Lyle Phillips so much and what he carries. And Lyle was preaching on this topic of purity being an idol in, in, in much of the globe and, and he shared this, he, he said, you know, in my parents' generation growing up in the church, there was really an unhealthy, tainted version of the prosperity gospel rearing its head. Almost this thing of like, if you, whoever's the most anointed will have the biggest brands or drive the nicest cars. And it was this pressure that was rising up in that, in that decade. And Lyle said, the, the challenge now is not so much the unhealthy po- prosperity gospel, but it's the popularity gospel. That is really gripping us here in the, in, in the world. And I want to suggest in order for us to be House of Bethany, we cannot judge success by earthly measurables, by size, by likes, by followings. The question for success was, was Jesus there today? If he was there, it was a good service. If he wasn't, it wasn't good. How, is it a good song? Does Jesus like the song? Then it's a great song. <laughs> I mean, I know this is so simple, but this is, this is it. This is, I know this sounds intense, but I wrote that check off a long time ago. Um, I'm going for it. I want him. I want him. Pastor Bill, he, when I was at, in Reading at school, one of the students, we had a Q and A session, and Q and A sessions could either go really bad or really good, depending on what's asked. We get some awkward questions. Any time we got an awkward question, I would just grab Emily's hand and close my eyes, and like, it's so cringy, it's so cringy. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> one of the students asked Bill this question. Said, "Bill, um, did you ever think you'd have this much popularity and notoriety? Did you ever think you'd have this huge?" stadium filled with people, this huge auditorium. And Bill is one of the most humble men I've ever sat under. And he said so quietly, he said, no, I never dreamed in terms of size. I I never asked God for a big church. I never asked God for a big sanctuary. I dream in terms of depths and realms of the presence of God. I don't dream in terms of size and numbers. I dream in terms of depths and realms. I want him. If he's there, there could be 100 people. There could be 100,000 people. As long as he is there, I want him at any cost. And I believe this is a priority shift the Lord is drilling into the bride of Christ, that we are here for a husband of one, a husband of one. <laughs> popularity is very misleading the same crowds that welcomed jesus on palm sunday were the same ones who shouted crucify him a few days later crowds and popularity are not stable we cannot root our hearts and our affection in that it must only be him i said this before if 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 numbers meant success, then the cross of Jesus would have been a failure because there were only a few there at his feet. It was success because he was there. I shared this before. I've never felt pressed from the Lord to build something that's big, but I have felt pressed to build something that's pure with my life. You know, the Tower of Babel, it was really big, it was gonna be really tall, but it did not have the purity of God. It did not have the mark of heaven there. And if something is, if I wanna build something big, I just have to build it on my personality or my talents. But if something is built on me, it will last as long as me or even shorter. But if it is built on Jesus, it will last as long as Jesus. Because he is eternal. I believe it was Leonard Ravenhill who said, who said this, if you want to know how popular a church is, attend on a Sunday morning. If you want to see how popular the pastor is, attend a Sunday night. If you want to see how popular Jesus is, attend the prayer meeting. One of the most life-giving things I've seen in this congregation is how many show up at 6 a.m. on a Sunday morning just to love him, just to love him. That shows me Jesus is very popular here. (laughs) Jesus is very popular in this house. And like I said before, this is so countercultural. We're in Dallas, Texas. We are in a corporate hub in America that is driven by achievement, that's driven by your gifting, your talent, your finesse. And so this is so countercultural for us as a people that before work at 6 a.m. that we lay everything down to come and behold him. It's beautiful. I believe to be a house of Bethany There's a word called Maranatha. I touched on it last week. Uh, This word is a a word of unity, I believe. You know, unity has really become a buzzword, I feel like, the last couple years. Sometimes I don't even know what it means. Like, let's unify around this, unify around this. And it's very vague to me. And really, when you remove Jesus from unity, you don't have unity, you have uniformity. And really when the world is talking about unity, what the world is really saying is unify around my agenda, unify around my platform, unify unify around my ideas and what I am trying to push. But I believe the most unifying cry for the bride will be this word called Maranatha. This will be the most unifying theme in the last days. Maranatha, it was really only used one time in scripture. It was used, I think, at the end of 1 Corinthians. Paul had a scribe write the entire book of 1 Corinthians. And the last word of it, Paul actually takes his pen out and writes Maranatha, and he writes it in Aramaic. And Maranatha is a word that really has three different definitions. It means this, the Lord came, the Lord is coming, so Lord Jesus, would you come? And it was not just a word, but it was a secret greeting the early church had. Like shalom was a greeting that the Jews had. Maranatha was a secret term that the early Christians had. And it was not just a phrase, but it was a culture tattooed into the DNA of their hearts of this. They were so rooted in the coming of Jesus. They were so rooted in his past coming and they were so rooted, Lord Jesus, come now, come now. And it was this this unifying theme that really drove the the body of Christ. And first John chapter three says, but we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him for we shall see him as he truly is. All who have this hope in him. What hope? The hope of his coming. So all who have this hope in his coming purify themselves just as he is pure. See, it's not your job to purify yourself. It's your job to hope in his coming. It's his job to purify you. This is what happens when we hope in his return. Why do we hit on revelation so much? Come, Lord Jesus, come. Come, Lord Jesus, come. That whole year, I believe, has been purifying us as a house because we've been anchoring our hearts in the coming of Jesus when he'll split the sky and come. This is it. House of Bethany. I wanna end just with this last thing. Um, Zahir. if you could help me out with piano. The last thing I wanna say is uh, that shapes the House of Bethany, simplicity over Activity simplicity so over activity. I really haven't been able to get away from this word simplicity this past year. Like I said, uh, just a few minutes ago, this is so countercultural in Dallas, Texas, yeah. that word simplicity. Right. It's so counter, uh, counter-kingdom. Yeah. In Redding, when Emily and I were living there, there was this beautiful lake It was called Whiskeytown Lake. I don't know why it was called Whiskeytown. It had nothing to do with whiskey, (laughs) but it was called Whiskeytown Lake, and it was so beautiful. There was this beautiful lake and mountains just all around it, and one of the most amazing things would happen. It was rare for it to happen, but there'd be these rare moments when there would be no boats going by in the water. There'd be No one canoeing or fishing in the water, but the water would be at complete stillness. And when it was at complete stillness, we could see the perfect reflection of the mountain right there in the water. In other words, the moment water reaches stillness is the moment it rightly reflects the image of that which is above it. What's what's the implication? (laughs) When our hearts are still, sitting at the feet of Jesus is when we best reflect the image of Jesus, the one who is above us. Stillness is not the absence of activity, but it's the igniting of divine activity. When I am still, I can reflect him. When I'm still and doing nothing, he's doing everything. I want to read in Luke chapter 10. I have not been able to get away from this, this chapter. This is a story of Mary and Martha. I, I love it. I keep getting stuff out of it. And this really illustrates the prototype for a house of Bethany in scripture. She's called Mary of Bethany. Mary, the one who has the poor spirit. Mary, the one who's addicted to Jesus, Mary, the one who's the first one to see him when he was resurrected. And I believe there's so much we can look at as a house of what to mirror when we read this story. So verse 38 of chapter 10, when they were traveling, notice Jesus is always on the move. If you want to live a life of movement, the kingdom is is always advancing. It's always moving. He entered a village and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. I said this before, Martha understood what it took to get Jesus inside the house, but only Mary discovered what would keep him in the house permanently. She had a sister named Mary who sat at the Lord's feet. Notice Mary was seated at Jesus' feet. She wasn't running around, she wasn't exhausted. She was in stillness. Mary sat at the Lord's feet, listening to what he said. Notice Mary was listening. Martha was not listening. Many times the things we are trying to do for the Lord make us deaf to the Lord. One was listening and in stillness, the other one was busy and deaf to the voice of the one whose words are bread to her soul, if she only knew what she was missing. But Martha was distracted by her many tasks. Notice these aren't Jesus's tasks, they are her tasks. <laughs> she wasn't caught up in the Lord's preparations, but these were self inflicted worries. Many times we end up busying our hearts with tasks that Jesus never asked us to do. The origin of her preparations was not the Lord, it was herself. And anything birthed by man will last as long as man, but anything birthed by the Spirit will last as long as the Spirit. Jesus will never give you tasks to take his place. If tasks have taken his place, then we have taken on tasks in his place. You know, the issue was not that Martha was serving. It was that she was distracted by her serving. Serving is a huge part of the kingdom of God. Why would Jesus rebuke serving? He's not rebuking serving. It's that she was distracted by her serving. It's amazing that it is possible for Jesus to be in the room, but you're completely oblivious to his presence. Lord, may we never be numb or too busy to not sense the wind of heaven in the room. May we always tremble at the wind, at the drop of a hat, the moment the wind comes. He's here, let's stop everything, he's here. It's all about you. This is Dwell Church, it's not called Martha Church. <laughs> Dwell, to be with you. You know, it's very easy to hide behind activity. It's very easy to, con- to conceal spiritual bankruptcy through fleshly activity, activity that's birthed in the flesh. Coryton ten Boom said this, beware of the barrenness of a busy life. I believe if if you're too busy to sit at the feet of Jesus, you're too busy. Verse 40, Martha was distracted by her many tasks. She came up and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to serve alone? It's so astounding to me how little of a revelation of Jesus do you have to have to ask the creator of the universe if he cares. Do you care, the creator of the universe? Don't you care? Tell her to give me a hand. You know, I've realized it's never a good idea to give Jesus advice. He created the heavens of the earth. I think he's got it. He doesn't need my advice. Just like when Peter was trying to tell him, don't go to the cross, don't go to the cross. Just bad plan, Just, just throw that out. It's never good to give Jesus advice. So she's advising him, tell my sister to give me a hand. Notice between the two, Mary and Martha, Mary never approaches Jesus to talk about Martha. Martha's the one that approached Jesus to talk about and criticize and complain about Mary. You know, you can tell if someone is either preoccupied with Jesus or preoccupied with themselves by this one gauge. (laughs) Do they talk about others more than they talk about Jesus? What name is on their lips? Is it criticism or is it love? (laughs) What is it? <laughs> when, we, when we were at Bethel, uh, Chris Vallotton, he's really Bill's second in command. And um, in the early days, they just—they did not get along with each other. They butted heads a lot. And uh, Chris Valentin would come to Bill and just start complaining about things going on in the church, about people in the church. And he said, Bill would just stare at him. <laughs> he would just stare at him, blank face, just wouldn't say anything. It's just, what a proper response to that she said tell her to give me a hand the Lord answered her Martha, Martha you are worried and upset about many things but one thing is needed one thing is necessary and she has made the right choice and it will not be taken for her A.W. Tozer said, our lives should be an endless preoccupation with God himself. Martha chose occupation for the Lord over preoccupation with the Lord. Martha placed more emphasis and value on her service to the Lord than her ministry to the Lord. Martha preferred distraction, so she was robbed of her attraction. Emily and I have been doing... Um, this online school called Jesus School by Michael and Jess Koulianos. And it's just totally rocked us. We're just about to finish it this week. But in one of the classes, Michael is talking about this, this passage. And he says, if you were to sit down and have a conversation with Martha and Mary and ask them this one question, ask them how is church today? You would get two completely different answers he said something on the grounds of this. If you ask Martha how church was, she would most likely say, oh, it was so efficient. All of our teams were running and working and we got it done. (laughs) And we had hundreds of people come in, hundreds come out over all of our 10 campuses and we just rocked it today. But if you ask Mary how was church today, she would say one thing. He came, he came, he came in the room, he was there. Lord, may this mark us as a house. May us be, as a people, be addicted to your coming. (laughs) Lord, we know there's stuff to do. We rejoice in the serving. Oh, but help us never get distracted by the serving us be more obsessed with you, our own tasks. And Lord, if there's any task that has originated in the flesh, we pray you would cut that away from our lives, Lord. God, we pray over everybody in this room, those who are in the workplace, those who are at a computer all day, those who are constantly with life that you can't, some of it you just can't control. Lord, I just pray that in the midst of all the chaos that they would see the person of Jesus in it, that they would have the peace of the Lord in the middle of the storm. This morning, I just want to give a call to you to come back to the first love. Thank you for joining us today at the Dwell Church Podcast. For more information about Dwell Church, visit us at dwell.church.